0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, three-time founder-turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder. Or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Hi, I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode I speak with Anna DePaula-Hannica, who's co-founder and CEO of Uno Health. Uno Health unlocks financial equity for low-income seniors, so millions can afford better health. Uno enrolls and recertifies Medicare members in all state and federal programs they're eligible for, putting thousands of dollars in their pocket and creating direct revenue and savings for their insurance company. She raised a successful seed round from Floodgate and Cowboy Ventures a couple years back, and she's worked in product and operations, product and marketing at places like Google, Clover, MHealth, and Sum. She's also been a fellow at HitLab Healthcare Innovation Lab and has a bachelor's from University of Oxford in psychology and neuroscience. On the episode, we talk about the root problem in US healthcare, product market fit and how to know when you have it, how to raise a seed round successfully and how to pick and keep a strong relationship with your co-founder. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Anna, welcome to Startups for Good. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me, Miles.
0: So let's jump right in. What are the biggest failures of our healthcare system today?
1: That's a great question, Miles, and jumping straight into the deep end. Um, so I'd start at a high level, which the fundamental flaw of the, the U.S. healthcare system is the incentive model that is at the core of the healthcare system, which is at a high level that historically the system has been set up to pay for every single service that a physician or clinical provider in the system provides. It's what's known as the fee-for-service model. And that means that the whole system is geared towards volume of services, whether that is primary care checkups, heart surgeries, hip surgeries, you know, all preventative uh, diabetic consultants. And so what that means is that over time, the system has created an incentive model that encourages everyone to just do more of an intervention. And there's this crazy, crazy stat that there's a, there's a day of the year where the, there's a nationwide cardiology conference where all the Nation's top cardiologists uh, all get together, and you know you'd guess if you were asked, you know, what happens on that day when you take all the nation's top cardiologists out of the system. You'd expect that more people would die, and the reality is actually the reverse, which is that there are fewer deaths on the day that you take those top cardiologists out of the system. And what that really points towards is that actually a lot of the time, greater interventions or the more interventions doesn't actually result in more outcomes. Now, the good news is that the system has been increasingly moving towards what's known as a value-based system, which is moving away from an incentive model that encourages more in- interventions and towards a model that really encourages focus on outcomes and how well people do and overall mortality rates, which is one of the reasons why I have been very attracted to the Medicare Advantage model, because I believe, and and many others see this, that they have done, CMS has done a very good job of building in what we call value-based incentive models into the financial system of the, the business model. So encouraging the system to deliver preventative care like flu shots and, and mammograms and incentivizing outcomes like improved diabetic management and improved um, healthcare outcomes. I'll pause there, It's a it's a meaty topic.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. So you said incentives, when you pay for each service, you get more services and some of those are actually counterproductive to people's health and longevity. And you're saying the solution is value-based care, which if you look at it one way, could mean giving the healthcare system incentives to give less care, which might might sound like that's not going to result in good things. But you're saying there's also an outcome component to it. And could you explain that a little bit more?
1: Absolutely. So I'd say it's not, it's not necessarily about less care, but it's about making sure that the right people get the right care at the right time. And a lot of that has to do with making sure people get what we call as preventive care. So care ahead of bad outcomes happening. So for example, with diabetes, making sure a physician is incentivized to have a conversation with someone about their diet well ahead of them actually developing diabetes later in life. And right now today, um, that isn't an incentive that is encouraged um, in the system. Uh, so it's, it's not necessarily about less, but making sure that the right level of care is provided to the right people at the right time.
0: And your company is involved more in the things, in the, in the enrollment side of it. Is that right?
1: Correct. We, we actually, we are a non-clinical organization. So, you know, our, our goal is to radically reduce the cost of care for millions of Medicare members. So those are seniors and disabled folks. And we do that by enrolling them via their insurance organizations into all of the government subsidy programs that exist. And when we do that, we not only reduce the cost of accessing preventative care, but also give them additional funding to be able to spend on the basic means on life. I'll go into a little bit more detail around why that is so powerful. So across the the Medicare population, which again is folks who are over the age of 65 or disabled, 60% of individuals are eligible for at least one lower income government program, but only 35 to 50% of folks are enrolled. And so you've got millions of people across the country who could be accessing much cheaper healthcare costs and have much more money to spend on the basic means in life. To put some numbers around that. Half of the population over the age of 60 lives on less than $30,000 a year, but ends up spending at least $5,000 out of pocket on their healthcare, at least. And what that means is for you know 50% of the senior population, folks are having to make really tough decisions between paying for two meals a day and getting really critical care. And often for that population, it's you know between getting heart surgery and, and, and two meals a day. And these programs, and to, to put specific labels on them, programs like Medicaid itself, food stamps, utility assistance, prescription assistance programs, not only reduce co-pays and so reduce the cost of care, but often can give people back a significant amount of cash. So often these programs will give someone $5,000 worth of cash and savings every year and effectively increase their annual budget by 25 to 30%. You might ask, okay, that sounds like the right thing to do, but why does it matter so much in healthcare? The reason being is in this country, as Miles, well as I know you appreciate health is often equivalent to, to finances for a lot of people. And the biggest barrier to accessing really critical, let alone preventative care is finances. Over the last few years, it's it's come to the forefront that, and being widely proven, that over two-thirds of health outcomes are actually determined by social factors. So things like access to food, access to money, access to a clean, stable roof. And financials and people's cash flow is really at the root cause of that. So we address the root cause of people actually accessing preventative care for a huge number of individuals in this country.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And and how does the business model work then?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and a fun one. So we are, we're B2B2C and we contract with Medicare Advantage plans, which are privatized Medicare plans. It's so about 50% of Medicare members in the US are actually now enrolled in a private plan. So we contract with um, insurance plans, you know, like a United or an Oscar or Humana. And once contracted, we go out and proactively enroll their Medicare members into these programs. As we enroll their members into these programs, we're putting, you know, five, $10,000 worth of cash and savings into their members' pockets. But we're also actually making revenue directly for our customers as well, through this really neat, esoteric model in healthcare. Where when we get folks enrolled in a couple of these programs, we actually increase the amount of money that our customers, the Medicare Advantage plans, receive every month to cover the cost of their members. And the reason that happened is because the government knows that the lower income you are, the more expensive you are. And so they uh, give the insurance companies more money to cover their costs. You might say, okay, well, the government should know how much someone's income is, but they don't have a good way of doing that. So they use enrollment into these programs, which are means-based as the data point for determining that someone is low-income. Uh, so as we enroll an individual and we say put $5,000, $10,000 worth of cash and savings into their pocket, we might make two to $3,000 worth of revenue uh, for our customers, the insurance plan, and then we take a percentage cut of that, that revenue.
0: So the patients get help in general in their life and are accessing these government programs they're eligible for. The insurance company gets some revenue and your company gets revenue. It seems like a win-win-win.
1: Very much a win-win-win. And it gets, there's there's even more win for our customers because as you can imagine, as we are locking this additional financial, these finances for their members, those individuals are happier to be part of this insurance plan They're healthier, so they start costing less. And the insurance plan is able to achieve many of their other goals in a more meaningful way. So we actually unlock lots of downstream benefits for our customers as well. For example, one of the the things that our customers have been very excited about over the last uh, year or so is, one, the ability to differentiate in an increasingly competitive market and related to the ability to retain their members again as the market becomes increasingly competitive.
0: And why don't these insurance companies do it for themselves?
1: It's a really good question. So one of the main reasons is enrolling individuals into these programs is incredibly complicated. Lots of things in healthcare are hard. um, And one of the reasons I started the company was this is a particularly hard operation and one that is really suited for, one, using technology and, two, centralizing expertise within a single organization. To give some context, we support enrollment into about eight programs in any given state. Each of these programs has a unique set of eligibility rules and application processes and you know, state and often county level rules around how to process these applications. So lots of different rules, but a perfect situation for technology to really support because a core part of, you know, technology platform is encoding all these different rules into different rules engines that then make it much, much easier to enroll a given individual into all of these programs at the same time. So you'll find that some insurance organizations do some of this work for different reasons, but often the really hard way and with pretty low conversion rates.
0: Now you mentioned starting the company and I'd love to hear what's changed from your original idea of how it's going to be to now?
1: So when we originally started the, the company, as I as I alluded to earlier, there was one of the things that was really coming to the forefront in the market was this idea that actually it's really the, non, the non-clinical stuff that has the ability to shift the needle on people's health outcomes. You know, getting people food, making sure they've got a roof over their head. And as a result, the government actually started to allow insurance companies to incorporate non-clinical services like food and, and transport and housing into their core insurance benefits, which was a really big deal at the time. What we knew at UNO was getting people enrolled in these programs was the most powerful way to solve for the social determinants of health, and really the starting point for then determining, okay, we've got someone enrolled in food stamps, we're getting them $200 a month to pay for food, but maybe this person has some really specific clinical needs that we need to solve through a really targeted food program. So what we saw was the ability for UNO to be an unlocking marketplace of non-clinical services. So step one, get as many people enrolled in these programs. Step two, really refine which individuals still need an addition, you know, some additional support. So it was much more sort of a marketplace model around non-clinical services. We pretty quickly proved that that was something we could do actually in response to COVID. So with Oscar, we very quickly, when lockdown originally happened, we we worked with them to support their members in uh, safely isolating and ensuring that we were screening for social isolation and food insecurity, which were the two biggest reasons why seniors were unable to stay safely at home. And we really proved that we could manage that model of you know, determining whether someone's food insecure or lonely and then referring out to a different provider. But in parallel, what we were learning was just how powerful these programs are through the entire life cycle of a Medicare individual. And that life cycle starts before they've even joined an insurance company. And the the key to this is that we support around eight programs. There's about four of those programs which actually interact in a very powerful way with insurance benefits and sort of supercharge insurance benefits. And what that means is that when an individual as a consumer is determining what is the best insurance product for them, if they're not considering their eligibility for some of these programs they are leaving a lot of coverage on the table. The analogy I often use is, you know, in the financial sector, banks do a really good job of figuring out what your credit score is and what your shopping patterns are and making sure that they guide you on this journey to being on the best credit card for for you and for them. And so as your credit score goes up, you might get bumped up to a platinum card. And as they determine that you are more interested in travel versus eating, they'll recommend, they'll recommend a different type of card to you. The same opportunity exists within insurance, health insurance, via these programs, but the industry doesn't have a good way of supporting people. One, determine what is available to them at the beginning, and then help them navigate as their finances and their healthcare needs change. And so what we've learned is that there's this opportunity for UNO to really quarterback someone's journey onto and through their insurance provider through the entire life cycle of their of their journey with a given insurance company.
0: So you've described like a product evolution there, a services evolution. I'm curious as CEO, how your role has been different than running a particular product, which I think is your background.
1: My my background has historically been much more focused on on the product side. Started my my journey building shipping products at Google. First and foremost, on the consumer side, but moved much more into social impact and, and healthcare. And then, when I left Google, worked at a couple of healthcare startups. Again, much more focused on the product side. As a CEO, you know, starting a company from scratch, uh, you are wearing many different hats, ranging from you know fundraising and the financials of a company to everything just to get you know the company up and running. A big part of my job over the last couple of years has been working with my co-founder Chloe to find and, and strive for product market fit, which we feel very excited about having found. And so wearing a pretty key sales hat in that process through obviously hiring. And I'd say, you know, the fun journey that Chloe and I have both been on in our respective roles is wearing many, many hats and then, you know, getting to the point where we can determine, okay, which of these hats do we now need to actually hire another key person on our team? And so for example, we've just hired our first head of sales, who will be joining next week, which represents a really big milestone for us because it means that we now feel really excited about having someone dedicated to that role and really putting gas on our sales cycle.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Congratulations! How do you know Thanks. when to take your hat off? <laughs>
1: It's a really good question. Uh, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to get, get your thoughts on this one, but um, I, you know, one of the processes which I have started to exercise and try to exercise on a continuous basis and also encourage Chloe and some of the other senior leaders on our team to do is, you know, constantly doing an audit of what is taking up a huge amount of your time and what, what should really be delegated to another individual. And I'd say there was really an inflection point Earlier in this year, where all of those different hats really compounded and added up <laughs> to way too much, that really sort of triggered that process starting. But really sort of at the point when you're starting to know, okay, this, this particular process is consuming a huge amount of time and energy. And I am, I am actually being the bottleneck on us being able to scale this particular aspect of our organization, whether it is on sales, whether it is on operations. I think coupled also with identifying where there are areas where, you know, you really need to level up a given part of the organization and bring in expertise that we don't currently have in the new organization. So for example, design is something where we have been pretty smart about bringing in, you know, contracting resources into the organization as it makes sense. As you know, design comes in lots of different Flavors, And so we've been smart to be able to use design expertise for different aspects of the organization, whether it's branding, whether it's product design, but we're now reaching this point where it feels really clear in some ways, somewhat emotionally, that we need design expertise within, you know, in a much more pervasive way. So I'd say it's a a combination of sort of data driven, but also a good good amount of gut that gets you to to identify when you need to actually hire someone and, and give your hat to them.
0: So combination of gut and data, is it the same for determining product market fit?
1: Yes, though I would say... We have tried to be in, in, you know, Chloe and I are both first time co-founders and so hadn't gone through the emotional cycle of what it means to feel product market fit. Mike Maples at Floodgate, one of our lead investors, sort of describes, you know, the pull of product market fit that you really feel very emotionally. But having not experienced that, Chloe and I, you know, really wanted to be pretty ruthless about the data. And so we went through a very thorough exercise when we first started the company of identifying what are all the key hypotheses that we have? How are we going to go about testing them? How are we going to know when we've achieved them? Um, and that really became the, the framework of our roadmap for the first 12 to 18 months. But there was definitely uh, an emotional emotional layer that kicked in, I'd say, at, at the end of 2020, when we were just really starting to pull the drive from customers. We were starting to get inbounds. We were starting to basically be able to, you know, had more kind of customer conversations than we, you know, had the capacity to be able to handle really. And so that was really, that was really sort of an emotional tipping point as well. But I'd say like constantly trying to make sure that every single sales conversation we're having, we're, we're checking off against, okay, what are the key questions we want to answer? Like what is this person actually buying from us? What kind of organization are and just trying to be as, as data driven as we could be.
0: When you're saying emotional, do you mean the intensity of, the, of which the buyer seeks a solution or something else.
1: Oh, when I when I was uh, using the word emotion, I meant more kind of individually. So, an in an emotion that you know myself and Chloe and others at the organization sort of felt as a result of having been part of enough of our you know our conversations with customers.
0: Gotcha. When you were talking about the hypotheses that you had that you wanted to prove. Are you able to be any more specific about that or give any examples? It sounds really interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and definitely, definitely a process I, I highly recommend, especially sort of early stages of even thinking about um, starting a company, is really, really drilling in into what are the hypotheses you have and you want to prove. And it's a really critical part of. You know, an MVP, you know, building out an MVP and determining is there or there there. But I'd say it's a combination of really baseline core assumptions, plus combined with product market fit hypotheses. So some examples on the assumption side are, we made an, you know, an assumption that I felt pretty confident about was that Medicare members were going to want our services. I felt pretty confident about this because I had worked at Clover Health before this. I had seen firsthand the power and the value of these programs, but it was an assumption, you know, a core baked in assumption that as a B2B to C company that our Cs, our consumers, we're gonna want our services. So really early on, when we first, we launched with our first customer, needed to prove out really basic metrics around things like engagement. How many people could we reach and engage around uh, our services? And how many converted into enrollment, which is the ultimate outcome of our services at the moment. So, you know, core assumptions was that we could actually deliver these services and these individuals wanted them. And so we proved that out pretty quickly. Another example of more of a product market fit question was one of the things I had experienced at Clover was just how many stakeholders, employees within the organization, across the organization, within different teams, So within our broker team, within our customer experience team, within our quality team focused on those value-based outcomes, how many of them were having to uh, tackle and deal with program enrollment as a way of delivering on their core job, whether it was reminding someone to take their meds, whether it was dealing with an incoming call from someone who couldn't afford to pay their claims. And so my hypothesis was, You know, there are so many people who are bogged down with this enrollment process in their day-to-day jobs. They would be really happy to be able to delegate this hard, gnarly work to someone else, but would want the feedback loop as they were making a referral out to say, okay, hey, I, I referred Mary across to Uno to get her enrolled in food stamps and every other program she might be eligible for. I want to know that that actually happened. And this was more of a product fit, market fit question, because you know one of the product hypotheses was that we needed to build a cons- like a customer facing product that would allow our customers to be able to make referrals across to us and to be able to provide that uh, fast feedback loop back to them and so when we launched with our first customer we launched with a portal that would allow our customers to be able to come in and See the results of our work, but also be able to refer folks across to us. And a couple of things happened. One, we had a really steady stream of referrals from our customer organization to us. So about 15% of members that we were going after got referred over to us from our customer at any given point in time. And then we were seeing really high traction and usage of this portal by, you know, it wasn't everyone at the organization. It was like the, as I mentioned, the specific individuals who were engaging with members on a day-to-day basis. And so these two data points combined really gave us sort of a, a validation around this this product market for hypothesis. And actually going back to <laughs> I think it, I don't know whether I can credit Mike Maples with this, but there's a there's a theory That, you know, one way of testing product market fit is that you give someone a product and if you take it away, they'll scream. And we tested this a little bit with this, with this portal, because we needed to take it down and do, you know, updates and to needed to give our our customers a sort of interim solution. And they got a little bit frustrated when it didn't have all the features that our original portal had. And So it was a good example of (laughs) what happens when you take something away.
0: So you're saying this happened accidentally, but it turned out to be a natural experiment that gave you further validation for the importance of the product in their business.
1: Exactly, we felt we we had already validated based on the data points I described based on the usage, but yes, further validated when we took it away (laughs) and and experienced some frustration.
0: Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than $10 million in annual budget, and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build, and architecting the right product. So, why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure, Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So, go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. How do you think mission has helped you or is that just inherently baked in as a healthcare startup?
1: I would say I do not think it's inherently baked in, and that comes, goes back to the first question you asked me around you know, what are the flaws in our systems. I actually think it's quite hard in the industry to find solutions like UNO where there is a real win-win for both you know, the organization and entity that is financially incentivized, which is typically either a big insurance company or a big provider organization, like a big health system and the patients or the members. And that was a real reason why Chloe and I started the company. So I'd, I'd been at Clover Health, Chloe had been at Oscar Health. And you know we were both at venture-backed insurance companies and had seen firsthand, even within organizations that had the finances to do the right thing and to do the mission-oriented thing. Ultimately, so many decisions still came back to, to revenue first. That often didn't align with, with the mission and with Putting the member and the patient first. So, I actually think it's 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 rarer than you think because ultimately, often within the system today, it still comes back to a volume game. So, even if you are doing a good thing, the system still often incentivizes you to do more of the good thing, and that's obviously true within within a venture backed environment. So, long winded way of saying, um, I don't I don't think that healthcare inherently means mission or a mission oriented and for good. For us, I think what's been, you know, the power of what we do is that it is truly win-win or win-win-win. And people see that very clearly and are very attracted to an organization and a mission for lack of better words, that is able to deliver so much value for, you know, some of the most vulnerable individuals in this country, whilst also just making total business sense for our customers.
0: And so that's helped you with recruiting, is that what you're saying?
1: It's helped us with sales, it's helped us with recruiting, yes, absolutely.
0: So how do you bake that mission in and make sure it stays a part of the company?
1: That is a great question and something we're actually coming back to as an organization is really making sure that that mission, which is ultimately to reduce the cost of care of millions of individuals across the country, is is really baked into everything we do into every single role role at the organization we've we've done a good job of establishing kind of values and virtues at a higher level and are now doing the work to make sure that, that that mission is really articulated through absolutely everything you do whether you are someone on our team we call them engagement coordinators who are calling individuals up to tell them how much money they they could be gaining back or whether you're kind of in the back office and you're helping to make sure uh, those applications all submitted to the government.
0: Now, you mentioned you and your co-founder are working at separate companies when you chose to start UNO. How did you know that this was the person you wanted to work with?
1: Chloe and I were introduced by a, by a mutual good friend, a former coworker of both of ours, who actually just introduced us as two people who kind of think very similarly about things and would enjoy you know, a conversation or two. Chloe at the time was, she'd taken a bit of time off Oscar and had been interviewing at different healthcare tech startups. So the first point of our conversation was, you know, her asking me what I thought about different organizations. And so we very quickly aligned around this challenge, which I described earlier, which is that it's it's just really rare in this industry to find models and solutions that are truly win-win. And we'd we'd had similar but slightly different and complementary experience. I had had the chance to work, you know, deep within an insurance operation, but also deep within a clinical and outcomes side of the business. And then Chloe had had more experience on the data and financial side. But we'd both been part of many decisions. Uh, around different service provider options and seen how often at the end of the day, like revenue, <laughs> revenue was the thing that, you know, was the thing that decisions are made of. And so Chloe very quickly saw that. And so we, we continued having, you know, we just kept on coming back to each other. And I think, you know, going back to product market fit, there's, there's sort of an emotional side as well of like finding a co-founder. And I think we both just kept on finding that we wanted to continue the conversation and she actually sort of pitched me on, on joining me on the journey. And it was, you know, in part due to the speed at which she was able to push my thinking forward and, you know, how quickly she saw the value, but really pushed my thinking on what the business model was and what, how we were going to sort of go out and launch that really got us to strong conviction on both sides very quickly.
0: And how do you keep that relationship strong?
1: Another great question, and I, I say that, you know, Chloe and I have had a great relationship from the start, but it is very much something, as with all, you know, relationships and, and marriages of sorts that you have to invest in. You know, one of the first things that I learned as part of our co-founding relationship is, and again, this is similar across many different relationships, is just the need to be, you know, to open up and get vulnerable with someone. Renee Brown talks about this very well, but uh, it getting open and talking about your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, what you're scared of, isn't is a is a really important starting point for a co-founder relationship, but obviously any relationship as well. So we've we've learned that for us in particular, one of the things that we have to continue investing in is the reality that whilst we ultimately think very similarly about the, the challenges and the solutions that we work on, we have different ways of operating in the world and approaching things. And If you don't work and harness that into like a really powerful, supercharged version of your strengths, it can it can combat (laughs) and become a point of tension. And so it's something that Chloe and I have learned that we need to sort of continue sort of making sure that we have enough time, you know, every week to be able to check in, that we are spending the time giving each other feedback, talking about how best to work with each other, what we need. And it's I'd say at a really basic level, it's just really ensuring that we invest enough time on a regular basis with each other to have those conversations.
0: In my experience, this is one of the key advantages of being co-located physically with your co-founder is the ability to have the rapid realignment uh, as new information is coming in and as you trip over a disagreement or something that you see differently. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm also intrigued. You you said, you know, I asked you about building a strong relationship and you answered by talking about vulnerabilities. And I just wanted to note that I think it's, it's true, but it's also one of those wonderful paradoxes of the world.
1: Absolutely. And I, I, I will elaborate and say it's, you know, that's, that was one of the starting points, but obviously, you know, one of many different topics that, that Chloe and I have to continue coming back to but I definitely, it's definitely something that, um, I think can get overlooked, especially in this type of relationship when you're so focused on the work and you're so focused on often on what you're trying to achieve and your goals and your roadmap and forget that actually you have to come back together as humans <laughs> and have a conversation with human, human to human. Um, but to your question about geographical proximity, as someone who kind of grew up at Google and grew up you know, doing a lot of work very effectively within virtual and remote environments, my time at Uno has really reinforced the power of you know, in-person time, obviously with Chloe, but also with the rest of our team. And I'd say particularly, particularly for a topic and for a product and service that is as complex as ours, it was a decision that Chloe and I made very early on was that just given the complexity of what we do, having and building a team in New York was really critical. We launched just was a week before lockdown <laughs> Back in March 2020, and you know we, we were very impressed with how well our team fared through you know that first six months of being remote. But there were definitely things when we came back together later on last year that we realized you know were were just the reasons why it was so important and why we'd made that decision to be to be in person. And so we've we've come back into the office pretty quickly and now have a team, you know most of our team working out an in office in New York.
0: You've had a lot of success with uh, fundraising. You mentioned very famous, successful investor who's your lead investor, and and with others. I'm curious if you have any advice for other founders about fundraising.
1: Well, we we raised our seed a, a couple of years ago, so my advice may be maybe a little bit out of date, especially given that a lot of fundraising has started to happen remotely. I think one of one of the things that people have mentioned to me, and I think will always come up is, is running a really tight process. So really approaching your fundraising process, like a great operation, like a great marketing campaign and really making sure that you are managing, you know, what becomes a number of pretty complex conversations and, and leads through a short space of time and really aiming to giving yourself those really clear milestones. Chloe and I, when we went out and raised our seed, set a pretty clear stake in the ground that we wanted to be closed within a month. And, and we came actually under that month, in fact. So I definitely think that's that's definitely one thing. And then I think the other thing is obviously the sort of story in the deck that you tell and making sure to invest the time and energy upfront in, in getting that right, because a big factor... Is obviously you know, the story you tell in the conversations, but also your confidence in telling that story and your confidence in ask answering the questions that come up in conversations. And that was something, you know, that was really the first month and first project that Chloe and I worked on together was spending about a month really investing in like revving on our deck and our story and just putting it through, you know, practice after practice. And I'd say that that was something I, you know, if I would change anything, would, would have started doing that earlier and get over the, the fear hump of pitching a random stranger on, on your deck and your story earlier on. Many more things, but I'll pause there. <laughs>
0: yeah, have a tight process with a deadline. Be well-versed in your story. Practice enough to be confident. I think that's
1: mm-hmm.
0: good advice. Do you have any other advice on any topic for aspiring founders?
1: I think one of the things we talked about earlier was you know that that process of validating your hypothesis. I think, again, something that I think I could have done even earlier was having conversations with customers sooner. And I think determining that, you know, there's two parts of it, right? Product market fit. There's is this is this a service or a product that someone is going to buy? And is that market that is generated large and interesting enough? And what's tough in a you know complex B2B sales world is that actually. You know, even for us today, the question of is someone going to buy is really only answered truly at the point when they sign on a, a contract. You know someone can say like, yes, yes, I love this, I want to buy it. We want to roll it out next month until they have actually signed on the bottom line. You know it isn't a true answer to that question. But I think there are ways, especially early on when you haven't necessarily fleshed out your entire product or business model, where you can go out and have really candid conversations with potential customers to understand. You know, what are their pain points? What would they pay money for? And actually even do, you know, something that we could have done earlier on is like put real pricing associated to services and ask someone, you know, like, are you interested in this service and this service and this service? And like, would you pay X amount of money for it? And so I think it's something that can feel pretty scary early on is having those kinds of conversations with customers. But I, I definitely think it's something I would very much encourage for anyone contemplating, you know, even very early stages of starting a business.
0: Thank you for that. Do you have any book, article, video that you would recommend to aspiring founders?
1: Well, two thoughts. Hard to come up with my, my number one recommendation, but I was thinking about this in the context of having seen you reference books. Um, I'm I'm currently reading a book called Never Split the Difference, which is around negotiating. Um, haven't finished it, so I, I I don't know whether I would strongly recommend it, but it came very strongly recommended to me. But I think the interesting thing even within the first couple of chapters is the book is written by a former FBI negotiator. Ultimately, you know, what is sort of conveyed is that, you know, at the heart of their success was really treating, you know, whoever it was on the other end of the negotiation line, like a human and employing really deep empathy in those situations, whether it was negotiating with a, you know, a bank heist, or with a with a terrorist and that has been a theme for me that has come up over and over again in the first two years of starting uno is 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 just ultimately that everything comes down to being a human you know great sales comes down to empathy and being able to understand and empathize with uh, your buyers on the other side of the line and being able to treat them as humans as you're going through that buying process so that's, I guess, more of a learning. Uh, I'm hoping hoping that the rest of the book unfolds to reinforce that. And then, you know, this is just a, another example. Um, I'm, you know, come from a product background, but one of, uh, one of the things that I get pretty nerdy about is like how you apply product principles to operations. And that was something that I really started to learn in my time at Clover. And there is also a former sort of army guy called General McChrystal, who's written a bunch of different bunch of different books, um, one, of called, one of which is called Team of Teams. And I think there are a lot of lessons in there around how you build effective operating models and how you, you know, in, in the army, often you're building much more of a matrix team, but a lot of nuggets in there about how you empower teams and individuals on the ground through a pretty complex reporting structure and how you empower people to make decisions on their own without having to go through a really complex set of reporting lines and approval chains and that's something that you know we continue to, to strive for you know and will continue to I'm sure for a long time is like how are you really empowering your teams at all levels to be able to make great decisions and and be able to continue learning and iterating and evolving on your product or service in the way that you want to as an organization so that's a that's another example of recommendation
0: Well, thank you for both of those. I'm quite amused that your lessons for entrepreneurship are coming from someone who's dealing with hostage takers and someone else who's dealing with (laughs) terrorist organizations. (laughs) Fascinating. But I do believe you can learn from all over the place. The Never Split the Difference author, whose name is escaping me, has a great masterclass, which I've watched. Uh, I have not read the book, but my favorite negotiating book is uh, Getting More.
1: Ah, so if you're it's Krystal in- Tal Talraz, are so the the two authors of uh, Never Split the Difference.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think that's uh, I think he's got a masterclass, and I've heard General McChrystal on a podcast before, so maybe I should check out the book there too. Thanks for those recommendations, and I hope they're useful to other people as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's something that definitely surprised me, especially as someone who is definitely not someone who would go to, to the army (laughs) or to warfare as, as my first, um, as my first point of contact. But you know, when you're, I, I think it all comes down to high stakes and when you're having to make quick decisions in high stakes environments, you really have to figure out how to enable people to do that effectively. So I think that's, that's really where a lot of those lessons come from.
0: Right. Makes total sense. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you, Miles.
0: Take care. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, Startupsforgood.com That's Startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.